my first question to help open up the talk is, when you look at the white screen, what do you see? This is not a projective test, don't worry. But when you look, what do you see? No, I'm, I'm literally asking you that. And not, not for you guys to mention out loud what you see. <laughs> Sorry. But just consider that for a second. What do you see? I'll never forget um, a, my geometry teacher for several reasons, one of which uh, he was a football coach and he was really, you know, always pumped up about geometry and, you know, mentioning that to students. But um, one part of uh, him teaching geometry, if you recall anything about geometry, maybe you blocked it out, is the... Um, when he was talking about, you know, different postulates, there's different postulates in geometry. Um, one of them is talking about what the concept of a point is, if you might recall. The concept of a point is quite literally just like a single, infinitesimally small thing. Very, very small point. Just a single point in space. That's all it is. And so, um, I'll be uh, wanting to go back to that at the very end, but um, to help set, set the stage for the rest of the talk, I'd like to go ahead and show um, a TEDx talk by Steve Hayes. He's a clinical psychologist who is credited as one of the originators of acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT. Um, and um, it's a therapy approach that focuses on mindfulness and acceptance-based techniques to help individuals live more fulfilling lives. Um, and so I can go ahead and cue the, cue the video now. Human beings have the biological equivalent of a sports car between their ears. And it's wonderful that we have this device. Our ability to reason and problem solve, to plan, predict, evaluate, abstract, to create, is the envy of the rest of living creation. But you would not jump into a fast sports car and jam on the accelerator if somebody hadn't told you where the brakes are and how to apply them. And this mind of ours, at times, takes us in the wrong direction. And when it's doing that, we have to know how to slow it down and to put on those brakes. And it's not obvious where that is. Our temptation is to put on the brakes by jamming on the accelerator and swerving back and forth really fast. But it turns out the brakes are in an entirely different area. I'm giving this talk at a TEDx that's sponsored by the Davidson Academy, which is one of the treasures of the US. A school for the gifted and talented or young people who have IQs at the 99.9th percentile or above are educated. And so I know I'm looking at people who over the next years are going to make a profound difference to human society, very likely. But I'm also a clinical psychologist. And I know that I'm looking at people who are going to suffer. I know that I'm looking at people who are going to have thoughts come up very close, like you're not lovable, 
or life's not livable. Like, there's something wrong with you. Deep down, you're bad, or you're mean, or you should be ashamed. Or you need to figure out a way to run from that painful rejection or betrayal or that traumatic thing that happened to you. And when that happens, I don't care how smart you are, you're going to need to know how to put on the mental brakes. So what he was referring to, of course, is that our minds are set up and quite often we're trained from a very, very, very young age to address virtually all of our problems in this sort of problem-solving mode of mind. Sometimes, you know, we call it the fix-it principle, which I'll get to in just a second. But just to clarify what I'm talking about today, There it is. Um, I'll be talking about what mindfulness isn't, was it what it is, um, and also what it means about how we can be loving to ourselves and to other people. And lo and behold, those things can be connected. So first, of course, what mindfulness isn't and what it is. Well, I hate to shatter some um, beliefs here, but uh, one of the things, uh, one of the common things that I've heard people refer to or how they use mindfulness, of course, is uh, it's a relaxation exercise to relax. And while the practice of mindfulness certainly can be relaxing, absolutely, the core of it, what it's used for, is actually a way to focus attention. And another way that um, it can be experienced as certainly relaxing is it's commonly paired up with you know, deep breathing and that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, you know, Again, it's a way to focus our attention. And one of the uh, definitions that I like to consider um, when thinking about mindfulness and grounding myself back into what it is, you know, what its purpose is, what its core purpose is, is uh, the definition by John Kabat-Zinn, a, a medical doctor often credited with um, being one of the um, first folks, first uh, researchers to bring in mindfulness under the uh, empirical research lens. Mindfulness means paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally. There's several parts to it. Um, and I guess, you know, given all of these different parts, it's not too surprising to see how, you know, mindfulness has had lots of applications. I'm not sure if all of you have heard of, you know, the different ways folks have been encouraged to practice mindfulness, like eat a raisin, chew on it for a very long period of time, keep chewing. And I know, you know, quite often, you know, usually when you eat a raisin, you know, you you mindless, mindlessly do it, you know, chew on it and then eat it and be done with it. 
uh, it can be a way of slowing down. When doing this, when focusing on something in a particular way, non-judgmentally, without judgment, when doing this, especially if it is distressing thoughts, distressing, are contained maybe in past or future events, maybe within the concert of one's own mind, it will be likely to be relaxing with or without deep breathing. So I'm not, all, I'm not surprised that it can be quite oftentimes a relaxing thing to do. Because our minds, as you know, Dr. Hayes was referring to here, um, our minds can oftentimes be kind of battlegrounds to ourselves, in addition towards other people, of course. But, um, you know, and I'm, of course, very familiar with this myself. My mind, if I just kind of mindlessly let it go and I'm not mindfully observing it, its natural state is to be jud judgmental towards me and what I do and what I've done and how I could do it better. And if I am not aware of what it's doing, well, I might mindlessly, as again, Dr. Hayes was putting it, engage that mode of mind that I've been trained to from a very, very early age. Engage the fix-it principle by how? Problem solving. Jam down on the gas, go faster, try to do, you know, turn certain ways and do certain things to fix the emotional or cognitive problem in my mind. But of course, it's in our mind. It's not something that can just be erased. So the other thing that I wanted to mention before I got into more of the guts of what I wanted to talk more about it as well is I've also heard it talked about mindfulness in terms of uh, it's the thing that we must strive towards. It's the goal. I should be more mindful. That's it. And while that's certainly a very worthy thing or something that might bring about a lot of positivity or, or positive change in someone, I'm not knocking that at all, um, in terms of how it can be applied well, in my opinion, is it's more a means to an end, a good, a good I believe, a good means to an end. And so what's interesting about this, I think, is that it suggests that that end goal is sort of up to whatever value system someone has. And really what is important, I, I think, again, in my opinion, is we can be more mindful of what our mind is doing to get there. So again, I've mentioned the fix-it mentality several times. There's a toolbox. <laughs> when talking about the fix-it mentality, um, I like referring back to, again, we have a, a, a wonderful mind that helps us fix and, and work through a lot of problems out there in the quote-unquote real world all the time. 
And it's wonderful. It does so many of these things powerfully. We're able to come up with cognitive representations of things out there in the real world. You can read an instruction manual and know how to fix a chair leg, change the oil in someone's car, read the instructions, do things very, very, very complexly on physical objects out there in the real world. And the problem-solving mode of mind is, works wonderfully for those things. Of course, it does. It's quite often very necessary. And something that I might ask you to uh, consider for a second is maybe when, you, maybe when you're growing up, what do you recall about when you're having a really difficult time thinking about a particular thing? Maybe you mentioned this to parents or something like this. You know, um, someone at school, you know, pushed me or called me a name or I'm feeling really sad or something like this. You remember what the advice, what, what advice you were given? And again, you don't need to say anything right now, but just the common theme that you know, we, we tend to hear is think of something different. Do something differently. Essentially, fix it by removal. Change it. And what's very interesting, if you consider for a second, you know, what I was talking about, think, you know, solving problems in the real world, quote unquote, outside of ourselves, or sometimes called the world without, instead of the world within. So if I'm talking about, you know, solving problems in the world without, and we're having so much success with solving a lot of problems in the world without, then we try to apply, and this is the danger here, we start to apply that same mode of mind upon ourselves, and our emotions, and our memories, and our thoughts, on the world within, suddenly it doesn't work as well. And what's fascinating too, um, and later on in the talk, um, uh, Dr. Hayes you know, brings up a common example, you know, folks who use ACT or teach mindfulness will use this sometimes to illustrate a point. Our minds do not tend to forget. Once we've put something in there, it's not like it's a calculator that has a subtraction sign. It doesn't actually have that. It has plus, multiply, perhaps divide, I don't know. But um, yeah, it, it doesn't tend to work as well. One way that I like to think of mindfulness operating helpfully, or in a helpful way, um, is, you know, going back to the car analogy, a little bit like the brakes on a car. That whole TED talk was called How to Apply or How to Use Mental Brakes to Avoid Mental Brakes. Haha. Um, <laughs> So, in, in terms of applying the mental breaks, when one mindfully observes something just for a moment, 
especially when it's something very difficult and it feels like you're going very, very quickly towards a problem or something must be solved immediately, it can be helpful to pause. Consider for a second um, what options there are that are presented to someone and from a wiser stance make the decision. Now, I'm not knocking that occasionally there are times when we need to make decisions very quickly. Of course there are. But when we have moments, when we have minutes in the day to pause, John Kabat-Zinn uses the phrase, you know, pausing to drop into mindfulness. Mindfulness is always available technically and always there for us to drop into when we can. That can put us in a better position to make wiser decisions, wiser decisions based on our value systems. You know, our value systems, when we pause and reflect on how they're built, they tend to be very positive. Another way that, you know, can kind of reflect um, how, of course, this is not the easiest thing to just do, right? Um, those of you who've, you know, maybe you've downloaded some apps to start practicing this or whatever, it's not something that one just picks up and, you know, instantly masters. It's very difficult, especially when it's tied to very significant, like if, if, it's, on, if it's about something, a thought or a feeling that's especially difficult to deal with or especially difficult to, you know, kind of like it comes up close like this and it might be like blocking sort of my attention to someone who, with whom I'm talking. Um, it can be especially difficult to do that. And so one way I like to talk about it sometimes is it can be like building up a mindfulness muscle. It's something to be practiced. And in that way, it's where you can start to see, I think, where a little bit of self-compassion can come in when one is trying something out, especially when it's difficult and it's a bit different perhaps than what one has been taught to deal with um, different emotions and problematic thoughts. I like to think of it in this way about like, you know, how someone practices before the big soccer game or the big, you know, football game or whatever, right? The Seattle Seahawks don't, you know, just jump in and instantly start playing, you know, in a football game. They have to practice day in and day out to do well. And it's not surprising that Usually it takes a certain amount of practice to get better at being mindful. So for those of you who've been trying and, uh, to do this mindfulness stuff and finding some, finding some difficulties recently, uh, it's something that I would you know, encourage um, some amount of self-compassion with that. If it's not the point of life, if mindfulness isn't like the ultimate goal and that sort of thing, then, then how can it help us? Well, 
again, it can help us put on the brakes um, so that the stuff we're avoiding will probably, the, the interesting part about this is when we put on the brakes and when we start mindfully observing what's there to be observed, what our mind tends to come up with, um, don't be surprised. The stuff that we were avoiding will probably catch up. And this is the part where it can also invite a bit of difficulty. You work on it long enough, probably the things that were being pressed to the side will probably come up again. And that can be another point of discouragement. This is one of the most difficult parts of getting sort of, um, one of the important parts of uh, practicing in general is getting buy-in. <laughs> People buying into, you know, something as being helpful, right? When people are doing it correctly, then, doing this correctly, mindfulness, um, what's ironic, then, is this will probably happen. And it will feel like, and this is the difference here, it will feel like it's not working. Why? Well, it's not removing the distressing feeling. Oh. But, as I mentioned before, um, emotions, uh, they tend to be there. They're not erasable. It also helps us better see ourselves and others. So again, uh, you can think back to looking at the fork in the road, you know, mindfully observing self and how one is with other people. There's really no guarantee that this stuff is easy. The better question to me when thinking about applying mindfulness at any point is, what am I going to practice focusing on right now? Because another aspect of mindfulness, you may have heard it sometimes glued with the idea that um, mindfulness is sort of like practicing, like having an empty head which, technically speaking, if we go back to the definition, that's not true. The focus is, the, the practice is, what are you going to focus on and help practice focusing on that single point? So, you know, one choice, of course, the breath is a classic choice. There's a lot of, you know, moment-to-moment -moment difference to notice and pay attention to. Um, it could also be on like external stimuli. You know, again, I was talking about the rays and the food. Um, even you may have heard of walking meditations. Uh, what's what's kind of fun is um, I, you can talk with me afterwards if you want some uh, pointers on where to look for for further reading or watching or anything. Um, UCLA um, actually has a center on mindfulness research. Um, and they, they actually have free recordings. Uh, and one of them, I, I kind of laughed when I was going through some of them because, you know, they talk about literally um, walking meditations. So you can picture someone, you know, walking down and just kind of like mindfully looking at their feet as they're, you know, trying to shuffle along, bumping into things or whatever. Um, technically, and this is kind of the exciting part, technically, it could be anything. Practice is to do it non-judgmentally, which can be pretty difficult, especially if it's tied to important past events. 
So it can also, of course, be done with our own thoughts, and this is one of the ways that it is popularly practiced these days. Um, and what's interesting is uh, in terms of practicing, especially with very difficult or problematic thoughts that you know get in the way a little bit like this I was mentioning before, and help practicing, you know, kind of placing those thoughts more to the side so that you can actually more, you know, easily talk with and commune with and connect with others, um, is some silly sounding ones. Um, you can make them a song. Make them a little bit more silly, um, especially when they are uh, applied to oneself and uh, something that maybe, maybe there was a mistake that was made. Um, Dr. Hayes uh, gave the example of uh, singing the phrase and the um, melody of uh, happy birthday. I'm really, really, really bad. I'm really, really, really bad. I'm really, 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 really. You get the idea. <laughs> you can also call your mind a name. It's kind of interesting. So what's interesting with that, and uh, it's fine, I, I try to do this when I can, because uh, I've found it personally more effective this way, is if you give your mind a name, it has its own voice, and you, know, you can start uh, looking at it from a little bit more of a dispassionate kind of curiosity. He calls his mind George. <laughs> it's like, oh, do you remember that time when you messed up this particular thing? Oh. Thanks, George. I know. And you can still decide, and the cool part about this is this isn't dismissing your own mind. This is also not judging your mind. And it's very, very, very easy to start doing that when we start engaging these different practices and start saying, like, I don't like a particular thought or feeling. This is where the danger can really come in, is that then it starts to become self-punitive, self-effacing. You can also say the problematic thought repeatedly, very quickly, as long as it's um, a single word. Uh, and to help kind of illustrate this point, um, uh, Dr. Hayes uh, went into a, a word that commonly brings up a lot of um, feeling or even biological response, usually something food-based. So today, you brought a cake. How many of you actually had some of the cake? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. How many of you can think of cake right now, like just biting into... You know, that perfect cake crumble, moist, frosting, all that stuff. Can you picture that? If there was cotton in your mouth, it would probably be a little bit heavier from your saliva. It's remarkable. Just consider this for a second. That wasn't in front of you, literally. It was not literally in front of you. 
our minds have remarkable power over our own responses to things, even when they're not immediately in front of us. And this is really where mindfulness can help us attend to what we need to attend to. And there's a lot of other ways that we can approach this. Um, so again, putting on the brakes just enough to create some amount of distance between oneself and the thought. Again, a little bit about, you know, similar to looking at a piece of paper that can obstruct our view of others directly in front of us can be helpful to learn how to bring a little bit distance between ourselves and those things. We could also focus on aspects of our value systems. And again, this is kind of like an exciting part. We, we can consider what gives our lives meaning, regardless of background, culture, upbringing. So, what might this mean to us, like right now though? I talked a lot about you know, different ways to perhaps practice mindfulness. First, um, the judgmental part can be routinely visited. If mindfulness is approached in sort of a fix-it way, a way to remove, uh, the mind can easily turn on itself and berate itself with failures. And it can, ironically enough, promote a, more of a problem. Rather, every time the mind is brought back to what it, it's originally trying to attend to, maybe it's like, you know, mindfully observing the breath in and out and noticing the change in the stomach as it's rising and falling. Um, it, every time the mind wanders, goes away, and then comes back to what it's trying to focus on, it's a little bit like a bicep curl, if you want to go back to the mindfulness muscle analogy. Every time it's brought back, that's like building it up. So in a way, ironically, it's like there's an opportunity every time that the mind goes off in a different direction, getting better and noticing that one has to do it fewer and fewer and fewer times in terms of bringing the mind back. So um, one time I remember um, uh, watching a video of Dr. Hayes talking about when he went on a um, retreat and noticing that it was really, really, really tough to focus on his mindfulness practice. He was trying to focus on his mindfulness practice, especially during like a bus ride. And um, one of his colleagues mentioned, you know, how actually this is really, he helped reframe this as an opportunity to build more of a mindfulness mu muscle in the midst of a challenging kind of a situation. So in short, in short, it's kind of a way to be kind to oneself uh, mentally by preparing oneself to act from the values we would like to act instead of, again, mindlessly doing it. So one personal example that I'd like to give here, some of my personal values um, include gentleness and kindness, 
which I'll talk a little bit more towards the end, but right now it's important because while I desire to share those values with others and the way that I interact with others, unfortunately, thoughts and feelings can get in the way. No matter how much I want to show kindness and gentleness towards other people, the things that I do during the day, my failures, whatever, so often. Again, my mind has been well-trained from a very young age to focus on what's wrong. And so, of course, it's going to bring it up. and say, oh, remember that, and I'm trying to talk with gentleness and kindness in front of, with someone in front of me. That's really tough sometimes. If I have been routinely mindless, not mindful, about my mind for long enough, I may not realize that I have been living, and this is the unfortunate part sometimes, living separate from my personal values for a long time and feel disconnected from parts of myself and my community, which can give me personal meaning, fulfillment. And sometimes it can be a nice way to remind oneself that they need to reconnect with them again. The second greatest commandment is something that um, helps me kind of focus on this sometimes too. Um, If you recall that um, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, um, the first one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. He also mentioned another. Love others as yourself. And what's interesting about that, and when I delved into it a little bit more during my own, you know, sort of tumultuous, Kyle talked several times about, you know, deconstruction, periods of deconstruction. That was during my time. Um, The concept of how we treat others can be a very powerful reflection of how we treat ourselves. Love others as how? Yourself. It helped kind of ground me because I, I got so bogged down with all the different rules and things that I ought to focus on. And if we go back to the concept of mindfulness and even much less mindfulness, generally speaking, our attention focuses, is focused very much like a spotlight on single points. That's how it functions. I need simple mindful focus. I guess, you know, just in a way, I'm, I'm, I consider myself a little bit simply. Um, look at the time. Yeah, I should probably get going on. Huh? So second, <laughs> second, paying attention to, in the present moment requires enough space. I, I have, I'm full of different things. If you want to talk to me more about all this stuff, I have so much that I want to say. Paying attention in the present moment requires enough space for the present moment. That's another way that I like to think of mindfulness practice is it helps us understand what is occupying our mental space. If we think of it like sort of a limited capacity area, 
it can be very helpful to understand, like, does my mental space, you know, allow for enough room to other people? Or even myself, if I need to be kind to myself for a second. Routinely, the moments when I struggle to emotionally be with someone can be traced back to the moments that were preceded by stress, anxious thoughts about the future, even the present. And in short, I do not have enough space for the other when that happens. I, I try to build up enough mindfulness muscle to build enough stamina for more space. So kind of to connect it back with um, a scripture reference here um, is, of course, the scripture reference where Jesus talks about, um, you know, simply put, not worrying. I'll go ahead and just summarize that entire thing for you. That last part, each day has enough trouble of its own, is actually the, if I was to shorten that whole thing up and just focus it down on what I wanted you guys to focus on, like a point, it would be that. What's ironic about, I think, our, our mode of minds, our problem-solving mode of minds, is again, if it can project out to solve issues and problems, it can do that in the future, can't it? It can bring up a lot of stuff. Sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's unhelpful in terms of doing what we need to do. And what's interesting too is that if we go back to the simple fact of um, what we have today is what we have and all that we can do is what we can do today, I think it becomes a poignant reminder of focusing more on the present, even on those things that help us plan for the future, are done today. So please don't misunderstand. This is not a call to not care. Right? That's not what I'm referencing here. It's quite the exact opposite. This is a call to focus as much as we can on the time that we have in the present moment. Because any preparations we make for tomorrow are made in the present moment. I would argue that the wisest and best preparations are made mindfully. So back to values. Quite often it can be healing to mindfully focus on values, such as those in, on connections with others, to a higher power, wishing the best in yourself, to others. It can be even done like sort of in a mantra. I'm giving you so many tips, you know, this is one of them. It can be even done like a mantra sometimes, a repeated phrase over and over, something to focus on. Some of the most powerful that I've found um, have been on the, on the verse on the greatest commandments, you know, because I have a history of being a bit obsessive compulsive, and uh, the simplicity of what to focus on and fulfilling commandments was quite comforting. And then finally, I'll circle back to my, the gentleness and kindness comment. This one hits home. Uh, the meaning of my name, Kevin. It means gentle and kind. One of the metaphors used in ACT is considering what life one wants to lead by considering the legacy one would leave behind. 
I am content if I leave gentleness and kindness in my wake. Nothing more, nothing less. That's all. So, what do you see? Where is your focus? How much of your mental space will be taken up with the stuff in your past? Anxious thoughts? You're going to give your actions over to those thoughts or perhaps other things? My hope is that when you work out your mindfulness muscle to better focus non-judgmentally on what you want to focus on, you have a firm idea about what you are working it out for. What's the purpose of it? What game, if we're using the game analogy here, what game will it be for? Maybe to be closer to God, better serving your community, family, or anything else. And that's it.